Well, this morning, I, I uh, in, for my own personal counsel, and when I say my personal study, I, that's just me in a place where God's counseling me, right? And any time that God counsels us, any time he brings in counsel, any time he brings in conviction, and we have to remember that conviction is, is only something that he has in the context of his love for us that's been accomplished in Christ. He convicts us so that we won't be condemned. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. And even when we don't discern or judge the flesh in us that we're, that's, that we're not of, then he, he will lovingly, lovingly uh, convict us. And so in my own personal uh, counsel this morning, as I was studying uh, the picture of the church and Revelations chapters 2 and 3, they give you a synopsis, a whole eternal synopsis of where, we, where the church is today, where it's been, and in its progression where it is, is today. And as I was studying that, I was having a beautiful time just being counseled, you know, and God counsels us. He he straightens out any crooked thinking. <laughs> so any, any crooked thinking we'll have is, is going to be outside the love of Christ for us. So we'll, we'll think crooked. And usually when we think crooked, you know, it's like getting lost. If you follow the directions, it gives you a, a straight path. But sometimes we get crooked or we get off. And that's where we need to have our minds renewed in Ephesians 4 and verse 23. But it's interesting, even then, where it says that, having our minds renewed in Ephesians 4 and verse 23, it's putting on Christ, and that's experience. It's, we, we couldn't put him on to experience him if he truly wasn't our proper position. And in Ephesians 4.20, uh, goes right into that, into that, even into that uh, uh, 24th, uh, 23rd and 24th verse. So it's an amazing thing when we consider just how much God loves us. And that's something we're just never going to come to the end of. And the need has been met already because of the love that Christ has for us. Because of, because of that tremendous love that he has for us. But then he, he brings that love into our experience. And we're going to see uh, what can be in our experience if it isn't his love. And, and as I was reading and studying this, I got a call from a very dear friend, a friend that, that is closer to a brother than me. He lives in a certain state. It's a big state in a certain city that I've had a certain relationship with for like 23 years. And some of the times as, as, and what's a leader? When we say leader, a leader clearly in the Bible is one who has been taught and continues to learn how to follow Christ as his only authority. That's what a leader is. No such thing as a leader apart from Christ. There's no such thing as leading without following, and that's a continual basis. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me 
is I follow Christ. <laughs> and that way, we will be, neither of us will take any crooked details. And of course, if it's, a, if it's anything in life that's a path that's crooked, we know it's not that beautiful path in Proverbs 4 and verse 18 that leads to the brightness of our eternal day. It's a, it's a path that just gets brighter and brighter until we see him in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We see him face to face. Usually, this dear friend of mine, and I'm thankful that I'm dear to him too, will call each other. And we, you know, and, and, and a lot of these times, they're very specific. And, and a lot of these times, they are an answer they're, they're God's answer in another vessel to how the enemy is coming against us. <laughs> and then we end up saying to each other, well, well, thank you for the call. No, thank you. No, thank you. you know, and, and all we're saying is we're just thankful to God of what he's done in this relationship. So as I, as I was studying this in especially in Revelations, the second chapter. Uh, that's when we had this, this conversation. And really, the conversation was an exchange of Christ for each other. And it was a very, very beautiful time. And so I'll read in, in Revelations chapter 2. And remember, there's, there's seven churches. You'll see them in, in, in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. There's seven. And seven is, is a number of completion. And it's, an, and it's also a number of, of the flow of the finished work of Christ in the church, and which has to do with his love. So there's seven churches, but it, sh- it shows, it shows a, a gradual decline, not in his love, not in what Christ has accomplished, but in what the church would receive or not receive and what would be the result of it. And so... As I was studying that, it says here, the first one church that he addresses, and I think it's very interesting, and this is Christ, through the Apostle John, it's amazing what God gives us at times. Some of the things, and I think in this sense, that, you know, when Paul, again, when he said in, in Philippians 3 and verse 9, that he, want, he didn't want to be found, he didn't want to find himself in his own self-righteousness, in his own righteousness, he said, because that was self-righteousness. And what does self-righteousness amount to? It just, it just amounts to total insanity and confusion. But he said, I don't want to be found in him. And so when we don't allow the enemy, and it has to be Christ and his love, right? Because it's, it's Christ and his love in us that does the resisting of the enemy. And we can't do it without it. We have no resistance experientially, experientially, because that's where the lies, the lie can't, can't touch again my relationship with Christ. It can't do that. Sin can't do it. The lie can't do it. So he goes after our experience. And many times he'll do this like he can do with certain leaders at certain times when they certainly call each other. And, and with all of us, and he can do this with evil dreams and all kinds of crazy things. And it's all this thought life thing, trying to move out the authority and depth and intimacy of Christ's love for us. See? 
He's trying to move that out experientially so that we don't experience that love at that particular time. And so the first church he addresses, that Christ is, he's addressing the church. And it says, unto the angel. And many, now, one thing we need to clear, okay, the angel here is not Kazan, C-H-A-Z-A-N. It's not that. They're not angels. They're not seraphim or cherubim. The angels here are messengers. They are men. They are men here, clearly in the context. So it's not that each local assembly had these angels. The, the four-winged cherubim, which is brought out in Ezekiel, the first chapter and the 10th chapter, or the seraphim in Isaiah, the sixth chapter. They were not those. They were they're angels. They're, they're men. And, uh, and also how those men would affect the local assembly would affect all those there also. So here it says, unto the angel, and the angel in the Greek is angelos. It's angelos, A-G-G-E-L-O-S. First G is silent, and it's pronounced angelos. And they're messengers. Because even those cherubim and seraphim, what were they to men? They were messengers. They were messengers. Here, it has to do with the church, and it has here to do when it says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. When it says Ephesus here, what it's bringing out here is the fact that the height of the position, proper image, proper definition of the Christian was given from the risen heavenly Christ position, the God-man in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. We see that in Revelations 1 and verse 20 in countless places uh, throughout. But he's seated at the right hand of the Father, again, fulfilling Psalm 110 verse 1 in a scores of other scriptures. He's seated there as the God-man, and he speaks there, speaking to the Apostle Paul about who he is, who he's been made to be in the Son of God's love, in Colossians 1 and verse 13. That's who he's made to be, and he gives us that. And he's talking about the height, the height of our heavenly position, meaning you can't go higher than God's very love for us, his church. I mean, you cannot excel that. And it even says that about God's thoughts in Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, especially 8 through 10. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are his thoughts. And his thoughts about us have to do with who he is and who he's made us to be in the son of his love because God is love in 1 John 4. And verse eight, and, and First John four eight and sixteen. So we can see very, very clearly here. He's first thing he has to address is where all this beautiful truth was brought out, the church at Ephesus. And he said, "Write these things," says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, and you know, in a star, right? any glory in and of itself, for that, for that star to emit that type of glory had to be created. And who created all things in John 1, 3 and in Colossians 1 and verse 16? It is Christ himself. 
So he said, he has those stars in his right hand. Again, when it says right hand here, where is Jesus seated? He's at the right hand. The right hand speaks of the absolute, complete, eternal satisfaction and joy about who his son is and who he's made us to be in the son of his love and doesn't see us separated from him. The moment you and I are in him, he never, he does not see us. He doesn't see us. Uh, and I don't, I don't believe that he ever didn't see all those, of uh, those that were truly his. When it was his will that none would perish, in 2 Peter 3, in, in, in verse 9, meeting, meeting the will of even those that were fallen, and he never took away the will, but there had to be a go-between, one mediator between God and men, the, the man Christ Jesus, the man, only him, the Greek article, the, the man, this man, no other one, between God and men, and men, it's the man Christ Jesus. And what that's bringing out in the most beautiful way is, again, as we've been taught, we could, the fall of, of, of Adam and all of us in him as our federal head, right? you have rule, states that rule governmentally, and then there's federal rule. <laughs> and that seems to take precedence. So we all, in that sense, we failed individually, but as a result of our federal head, Adam. And so, again, we need to see this. that He's at the right hand of the Father. That's how far what he's accomplished, his love has brought us. You, you can't go any higher than that in our position. And all that truth was brought out. And he said he holds them in his right hand. Completely, perfect, complete. We are the perfection the excellence of Christ towards his Father. Because who does he see when he, when he views us individually? He sees Christ in us and us in Christ, never separated, positionally. Now, so he holds the seven stars in his right hand, and it says he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And without going into too much detail here, he walks in the midst. Where does he walk in the midst? Where is he welcome to walk in the midst of a certain local assembly? And that is in Matthew 18 and verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in his name. And his name there means his nature, his very person, and the work that he's accomplished. When that is being manifested, obviously he's the one through the power of the Holy Spirit that's doing it. He's there. And then he recognizes it as a local assembly. He recognizes everyone that's born again. And he, recognized ev he recognized, recognizes everyone that's in him. But he does not recognize when Christians get together and it's not Christ and understanding his person and his work, he does not recognize it as a local assembly, even though they are owned of his and can't unown themselves because they were bought with a price in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, but he just doesn't recognize it. Here, they are recognized. But here it says this, he walks in the midst of the seven gold candlesticks. That's what that's meaning. He, he's walking in and amongst his church. You'll see by the time we get to the end 
of the last church, the church of Laodicea, where I believe we completely are as a country. He's knocking on the door, not of the church as a whole. He's knocking on the door of the individual. He's knocking on the will. Saying, if any man let me in, I can come in and I will fellowship with him. But there can be no fellowship apart from understanding the very nature, character, and very essence of the Son who is one with the Father and manifesting him in John 10 and verse 30. And then the accomplishments of all of that work that Christ accomplished himself that no one could do anything about. Remember, because the, the gap was so far in between the fall of Adam, so far in between, there had to be a mediator. That was what Job was praying for in Job 9 and verse 33. He said, I, I, I wish there was an umpire, a daysman, one who could touch me and my humanity and one who could touch God. That's Christ who put on, who was made flesh in John 1 verse 14. The Word, the Word, the Son of God, deity, was made flesh, the God-man. And so when they became, when he became one, and the work that he accomplished with his person, and his person, his person alone accomplished that work, that was the answer to his high priestly prayer in John 17, 11, 21, and 22. We are one positionally, but do we experience that reality individually? And then with these local assemblies. He said, these things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, totally accepted. We're accepted in the beloved. Right hand, Ephesians 1, 6, accepted. He can't reject us. God the Father would never reject us. Even when we fail, he doesn't reject us ever. He may not be able to fellowship with us. But he doesn't reject us because if he did, he would have to reject his son, the person and the work that he accomplished. And we know, we know that Jesus said, I always do those things that please him in John 8 and verse 29 and in Romans 15 and verse 3. But then he said he's walking in the midst. The first one he approaches is the church of Ephesus. And this is what he said. He said, I know your works. How does he know them? Well, because he's the one that's working in and through them what he worked out and finished about them, just like he does with us. When my experience, and when we talk experience, to experience position, uh, my will must have his person and the work that he's accomplished to actually, and be taught that, to actually experience it. Because again, the enemy doesn't touch, position can't. 1 John 5, 18, the wicked one, the B part, the wicked one touches us not. But what he does go after is our experience. That has to do with the will. The will, decisions have to do with the will. Definitely. And what we submit to. Now, who's the only one that ever fulfilled the Father's will? In Psalm 40, 7 and 8. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5, right through 9. He established it. He finished it. Jesus said in John 4 and verse 34, my meat, my very sustenance is to do the will of the Father and to finish the work, which he did even facing the cross before he ever went there. He had already finished that work in John 17 and verse 4. Then he went to the cross to manifest it in John 19 
and verse 30, to finish the work in propitiation to the Father and then as a substitute for whosoever would receive him and thus be reconciled. And so that we can see that between God and us, there's only one who could bridge that gap that was, you just, you couldn't bridge it, no one. We couldn't go up, he had to come down. That's why he put on humanity, to come down. And we've said before and we've been taught that when God became a man, he became a man forever. It's the perfection and identification and a proper image of a love life, truly, that nothing can disturb or distract. See, nothing can, dis- the enemy can't disturb and, dis- and, and do away with or, or distract the Father and the Son from the joy of what's been accomplished <laughs> for us. He can't touch it. There's nothing we can do to take it away because there was nothing we could do to earn it. Not a single thing. And that's why, again, the enemy goes after the experience and what makes this so necessary, the necessity, the necessity of a will constantly being submitted. And even when we forget God, and it's one of the easiest things we can do, he never forgets us, ever. First one he addresses is this, is the church He's of Ephesus. He said in Revelations 2 and verse 2, he said, I know your works and your labor. And your labor. And here it is. And he said, and your patience. Your patience. You can't labor properly without patience because all that patience is is love manifested when needed. And it takes more energy It does. It takes more grace and more supernatural divine energy to do nothing than it does to be active for God. The enemy wants to convince us it's the opposite. We need to be active. Again, the picture there is brought out in Luke the 10th chapter in verses 38 to 42 when Martha, without sitting at Jesus' feet and receiving the life that does the service, the life that does the laboring, the life that is patient, (laughs) that does the actual service, and if it's proper service, it's called proper worship, based upon a a proper trust and a proper flow of God's love. And so he said, in your patience, and how you can't bear them which are evil, And you have tried them which say they are apostles, these special messengers, and they are not. If you ever, you hear, and and I I believe some do it ignorantly, and and that's, you know, and then some do it rebelliously, and some can function in the ignorance of pride or the pride of ignorance. There is no such thing as an apostle today. (laughs) Okay, no such thing. Because of the requirements that would make an apostle. You had to have face-to-face contact with Christ, which the earthly apostles, those first 11, did, and the heavenly one, Paul, face-to-face, and then been given the word. That's what would make you an apostle. Those are the requirements. (laughs) And there are no more. There are no more. Which say they are apostles and are not, notice, and are not, this is church, Fools of the church, they are not, because God used those that he would use, and that's it. <laughs> they are not 
and has found them to be what then? Liars. Can I live in a lie ignorantly? Certainly in pride, rebellion, and stubbornness in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 23. And then it says, and has borne, has borne, put up with, <laughs> and has patience. I read this in God's counsel to me with a, just a, a series of these trials in my own life. That what happens, what can happen is when there's a series of one trial after another, one trial after another, the first, one of the first things we can lose is patience. I mean, and it, we could have been this whole series, good here, good, yeah, okay, you're good, you're good, you're good. And then finally, it's so much, I lose patience. I lose patience. And when we lose patience, we lose the experience of his love life that's continually flowing towards us. Because before we go forward in this love, we need patience to receive it. And not just for ourselves. Number one, it's for his glory. And if it's for his glory individually, it is a blessing. But then it's a blessing that we have and to share with others. We've said this and shared this with a certain, certain individual recently. <laughs> uh, in John 10, 10a, the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Can't touch my position. That's called experience. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life. That's the individual life that we have that only the individual in Christ can experience. But once you do, then it's called the abundant life. Now you're sharing it. And that's the abundant life. It's just the life of Christ manifested for every single opportunity. Every single opportunity, it's life that's manifested in a beautiful way. And then he said, has borne and has patience. And remember, the two words for patience is hupomone, circumstances and situations. Circumstances and situations. I wrote this down as I was having some fellowship and God was giving me the scriptures uh, this, this morning with just beautiful counsel. And uh, so when we see this, we see that word patience. The first one is hupomone. Hupomone deals with circumstances and situations. Listen, it's the details of life. It's the details of life. And so decisions have to do with definition. Boy, we need to know that one. Proper decisions have to do with a proper definition and a proper image. Because if it's not Christ and his love guiding us, it will be circumstances and situations. It will be details. And those details, those details can be the very thing that causes us to be separated from his love. We lose the authority of his love and then another authority comes in and takes precedence. Those details. And then we lose a proper image. We lose a proper uh, uh, Christ who is the height of our definition. <laughs> He's not separate from us. We see that very clearly in the scriptures. And so he said, you have, uh, you have had patience and for my name's sake you've labored. You've labored. And that a lot of times that laboring enters into what? Suffering. 
We know that if we suffer with him in 2 Timothy 2.12, and do it with submitting to his love. Try suffering without his love. Try that one on. Not happening. Try suffering and not experiencing his love. Because that's a depth of fellowship. In Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, Paul said, not be found in my own right, on my own righteousness, which is trying to define my circumstances and situations through my flesh. <laughs> and then macrothumia, dealing with, with negative, wrong, hateful, spiteful people against me. That's macrothumia. Patience is needed for both of those. At all times, in all circumstances and situations, that's what it involves. And so Paul said, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness in Philippians 3 and verse Nine, because he counted it dung. Dung. And anything that's not of Christ that I allow in my life becomes an idol. Remember the Hebrew word for idol, el-ilim. E-L-I-L-I-M. El-ilim. And it's a Hebrew word from God called nothings. When anything, even his gifts that he gives us, when those gifts become the means of us forgetting him, what do they become? They're nothing. But with him, enjoying his creation, uh, just fellowshipping with him in that creation, wow, what an amazing thing. And so Paul said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Listen to this now. And that's I'm saying that because God's telling me right now, listen to this, I promise you. See, the power of his resurrection, that's our resurrection life. That's our position in Christ. But then it says, and the fellowship of his suffering. Because once we're in eternity, will there be any suffering? No. But there's a depth of fellowship in time. That's what makes it so vital, so important. Where there's a depth of suffering that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, this is experience, the fellowship of his sufferings because it's been appointed unto us in Philippians 1 and verse 29. Not only to believe on him, that means to trust him constantly for everything. And just because I believe and know these truths and experience doesn't mean I'm not going to suffer. That's part of my being one with Christ. But also to suffer for his sake, it says. So if I do it right, and it's for his sake, not suffering sin, but doing it righteously, in 2 Timothy 2.12, he says, you will reign with me. When? Then, and then for all eternity. That goes into that white stone in Revelations 2, in verse 17. That hidden manna, that means when we're alone with him. And he promises when we're alone, when you're alone, in your weakest moment, Fall on me because if you don't, and that's what faith means, it doesn't have a thing to do with emotions or feelings. Don't allow the enemy the lie that your feelings are the reason you shouldn't fall on him. Okay, because faith has nothing to do with feelings or emotions. It has to do with settled certain facts. <laughs> when I fall on him, I fall on his love for me in my weakest, most intense moments. But if I don't, I fall back on nothing. And that's when the enemy convinces me in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2. When, he, when you're not experiencing love, and boy, he knows it too, by the way. He's waiting for that. He convinces you you're nothing. Nothing makes any sense. 
And then when there's no sense of his love, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, what is your profit? And you and I may go to it, and that's in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, I, it profits me nothing. You see, God created us, we've said before, through the, and I only say it because the scriptures taught all of us. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, he said eternity in the heart of man. Why does it say that? What does that mean? You know what that means? That God created each and every single one of us with a hole in us that only his son can fill. You try and put anything in there, it's not gonna, it just won't work. It will not work. Why does it say he said eternity in the heart of man? Because in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, God inhabits eternity. And he who inhabits eternity through his son wants to inhabit us. And not just like we've been taught. We don't just give, he wants first place in your life. No, he has that by virtue of who he is. He wants every place. And every place that he gains possession, it is his love that makes us more than a conqueror, even in the midst of suffering. And we can see that in Romans 8 and verse 37. And nothing, and nothing can separate us. You read Romans 8, 31 to 39. You read Romans 8, 1. If you can't condemn me, you can't separate me in 39. Romans 8, 1. Can't separate me. Did the enemy try and use death to do that? Yes. But whose death? Out of it came whose life and that life that's made mine in Colossians 3 and verse 4, it's Christ. He has borne for my namesake and labored. Nevertheless, he says, I have against you. Where you see somewhat and it's italicized, you can cross that out, it's not in the original. He didn't, it wasn't somewhat. He, it was in, he had it intensely. He, was, he had that. Was that against who we were in Christ? In himself? No. He was against what we allowed through a lack of a submission of a will, through forgetting God, forgetting patience and learning the lessons of patience that's training us for eternity in time. But when we do, what, what happens? You leave your first love. What is your first love? What is your first love? Listen to this. Jesus said in, in Revelations chapter 1, verse 8, 11, and 17, he said it in Revelations 22 and verse 13. He said, I am the alpha, the beginning, the omega, the ending. I am love for you. And any time we don't experience the love that's positioned just in him, right, another authority comes in. Another authority comes in, these thoughts, these lying definitions, these, these, and when I think bad thoughts, and when they're being projected to me, and that's what the enemy always does. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They don't have to do with us, but they're, who? they're mighty through God to the pulling down of what? Strongholds. A stronghold is these reasonings that over a lifetime have lodged in my mind. And the enemy goes after those. He knows right where they are in our life. And when we have bad thoughts, we have bad feelings or bad emotions, and then the enemy convinces us through lies that that's who I am at that moment. He said, you left your first love because you left your first love. Meaning, my love is to be 
through, and God says, my love for you through my son, by the power of my Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is to be your only authority. And you know, that's why even Paul said, he did away with this whole ecclesiastic system and clerisy and all this nonsense. He did, it's done away with. Because even Paul said, and the, the height of our apostle, these heavenly truths, who was no different than us in his learning, he had to learn it. He had to learn in Philippians 4.11 and what sort of a state, experience he was in to what? To be content. Is there any contentment when we're not experiencing God's love? He created us with a whole and he filled it with the eternal life in 1 John 5.11 that his son is. Now that's happened in our experience, uh, in our position. Now through a growth in time, through proper teaching, understanding the person, the nature, character of Christ, which is manifesting the oneness of the Trinity itself, he's working in us what he's already worked out about us. He's making room for God's one thought, which was love. God so loved what? The whole, every human being, that he gave. That's what love does. It gives. And what does it do? When I'm not occupied with myself, what am I doing? I'm thinking of others. When I, when I become occupied with Christ, I lose myself in his love, in the flow of his love that's carrying me. Beautifully pictured, beautifully pictured in that beautiful place in Ezekiel, the 44th or 47th chapter, the flow of the river. I believe it's 47. The flow of that river. When we lose ourselves in his love, and we think of others, the moment I think of him and I'm free from self, I think of others. And no other authority can take his place. That's why Paul said in Acts 20, 32, he said, I, through Christ in him, commend you, give you over to the word of his grace. Who is the word? In John 1, 1, it's Christ. Who is grace and truth? The fullness of it in John 1, 14, it's Christ. I commend you to God, the Father, how, through, through the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are positioned in him, sanctified, set apart, set completely apart. And so what we see this is that when I make someone else, even another believer, to become the source of my expectation. In Psalm 62, 5, it says, my soul, what? Wait you upon God. Was that patience? Wait you upon God. No, I'm going to go, I'm going to try and fill the need myself. I'm going to try and use this thing to replace it. I'm going to try and use this other Christian. Not that we don't build each other up, but we never replace Christ in that because that's who we have to give to each other. But when I make another person to be my expectation, I live in the lie that somehow they have authority to do for me what Christ can only, can only do in me based upon what he's already completed about me in 1 John 4, 18. And so when I, it says, my soul waits you upon God, wait. It takes so much grace to Wait. Because it takes a tremendous amount of humility to receive a tremendous amount of grace. It does. It, take, it takes more strength 
of his grace, and that's Psalm 68, 28. He gives us these sources of strength and grace. And let the weak say, in Joel 3, 10 and 2 Corinthians 12, 9, let the weak say in your weakness, I can't, no, I am strong. Okay? It takes far more strength to do nothing until Christ does it in us and it's a proper experience because if not, then it's the flesh. And if I can't do it, I'm going to look to someone else to do it. And that's why in 62.8 of Psalm, it says, trust in him what? At all times. What are you trusting in? His love for you. And hasn't he said in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, I will never. I love it. It's a triple salutation there, by the way. I will never. No, never, no, never in any way forsake, leave you nor forsake you. Why? The Trinity is involved in us. God, that's God. The Father, I will never. God, does, no, never. The Holy Spirit, no, never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never do it. But you need to wait. And boy, when we don't wait. And we need to be careful too. I need to be careful. Especially when God comes in with a superabundance of blessing. Because as soon as we partake of that and forget God, in comes the enemy right away. Did you ever notice that? And he'll come looking for a place in Ephesians 4, verse 27, for that lie to lodge in our reasonings. Casting down imaginations. What's an imagination? It's some form of an idol that's in competition with Christ and me and me and Christ. That's what an idol is. And 1 John 5, 20. And 21 is the idol. We're, we're true in him. Is he true? Is Jesus Christ true? Just as true as he is, is once we receive him, is he true in me? And is he, is he made me true in him? And if anything comes in between that, what it's called? 521 of 1 John. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And those are the things that become the false authorities. Remember, therefore, he says, because you've left, you left your first love. He had that. That was an extreme, extreme, extreme. It, it, it touched him extremely. It wasn't somewhat. After everything he had done and everything he is in the individual God. I mean, everything. We're complete in him. In Colossians 2.10. We're not lacking a thing. He's our one fulfillment of our need in Philippians 4.19. And without him, we can do nothing in John 15, verse 5. And without experience his love, when that's not my thought, what am I experiencing? I'm nothing. Nothing makes sense. That's what the enemy tries to do. He said that you left, you left your first love. What's first love? How often do we need first love? Does first love ever change? Do you see why we don't give him first place? And do I see it with you? We don't give him. No, we love in 1 John 4, 19 because he first loved us. Because in 1 John 4, 10, herein is love. Here's the reason why you can receive it and I can receive it. Herein is love. Not that we loved him. Read Romans 5, 6 through 10. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, and the enemy will try and use sin, habits we hate but go back to, habits we hate but go back to, habits we hate but go back to, right? 
But does he ever leave us? Is he waiting to be gracious? Isaiah 30, verse 18. He's waiting to be gracious. He said, therefore, remember from where you are fallen. Now, some will teach that you can lose your salvation. You can't lose it. They'll use 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer with him, he'll reign with, we will reign with him. If we deny him, we'll also deny us. The denial is not what he's accomplished. He would have to be a liar to himself once we receive him, which we know in Numbers 23 and verse 19, Hebrews 6.18, Titus 1.2. He can't lie. There's, there's no lie in him. We know the father of all lies in John 8 verse 44. But what does it touch? Touches the experience. Can the lie touch my position? No. Can the sin touch my position? That, that I'm living it, but it was paid for. But God forbid that we should do that. God forbid. Remember then, from where you are fallen. That's Galatians chapter 5. You'll see that right through, right through to that chapter. When we fall experientially from grace, oh my God. There goes the love, because love can only flow. God who he is. No one ever deserved, and we even said, no unfallen angel ever deserved to be created. They, they didn't even exist to deserve it or not. It was God. It was Christ, their creator, our master, our Lord, our Savior. So he said, remember from where you've fallen experientially, and repent, change your mind, metanoia, repent, and do the first works. What were the first works? Receiving love that did the works. What is our work? Submit your will and let the flow of his love flow in and through you. Because that was where the greatest manifestation, the greatest manifestation of the love of God was brought out. And the love of God met, the height of the love of God met the height of the angelic evil conflict and evil men met on Calvary. And who won that one? He did. He did it to his father, propitiated him. But he did it because God so loved us, he had to be propitiated first, the sin question, so that Christ could be the accepted sacrifice. And once the father could receive that, then he could be the substitute for all those that would receive the fact that, that he did pay for their sins. Oh, God, keep us from living in what you already paid for. Please, Lord. And that's my prayer for myself. And repent and do the first works, else I will come quickly and remove your candlestick out of his, his place, except you repent. And that's the brightness and exchange of our fellowship. He doesn't remove his love from us positionally. But he can't fellowship with sin. Furthermore, in Habakkuk 1 and 13, his eyes are so pure, he can't even look upon iniquity. He can't even look upon it. But you know what? Here's a fact, and I'll close with this, as we had this beautiful dis discussion. Satan cannot stop God loving me once I'm in Christ. He can't. But he can stop me from experiencing it. And that's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Even in the things that God gives us, if he's not involved, it becomes something that, is, that we use for the flesh to try and fill a hole that only Christ has already fulfilled and already filled up. 
And what is it? And that's the lust patterns. And what is lust? Remember writing this down years ago. And tell by the pens and the paper that I use how far back they go. That lust is the interruption of the flow of the love of God for me as an individual. We were designed by God to be in a love relationship, a relationship of love. And I just think of this. Think about this. It, it just is amazing to me. That we receive his love. We receive his love. And my obedience is me loving God back. He gets he. What else would God be satisfied with? Then giving his love to the individual. And that individual becomes one with it and loves him right back. He's not the source of it, but he becomes one with it. And that's what Jesus did. He bridged that gap. He, you know what he did? Positionally, he closed all distance between you and I. Did you know that? He did. He closed every single thing. We were designed in our image. And our image is, is to be a loving authority. God's authority is his love. And, is, and, and God's love is to be our only authority. It's something that God has given you and I. You know, when, when man ends in himself, God begins in what is and has always been and only been in himself. It's all. And his love for us, his love for us, passes our understanding. And I'll tell you why. Because his love for us, that, that was one for us on Calvary, is limitless. It's to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge in Ephesians 3 and verse 19. And if I knew, and boy, we need to experience, if I knew, if I experienced his love for me, listen to this, I would never abuse myself anymore. And the enemy wants us to live. Why well, we're positioned in him to live in the experience of abusing ourselves. I don't want that anymore, do you? I don't want it. And thank God that even when we fail, in 1 John 1, 9, we can confess it because we, we've been given the means even of that confession. And if God didn't love us, even when we sin. There could be no such thing as confession. But he always lay, leaves a way open, always, for us to come back to him. And Father, we thank you so much. We're on our way home. The prodigal, the prodigal was on his way home. And you're leading us. You're making a home in us in Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of God be at home in you. Let Christ be at home in you. Let him move out what would keep him from your experience. And our home is this. Even now, we can experience our home. It's the presence of his intimate personal love. He desires an exchange. He wants this love relationship with us because of what Christ has accomplished. Father, thank you so much for your deep love. In Jesus' name, amen.